0: Typically, I try to post the, uh, the lectures in the same week, but I'm under a, uh, a subscription restriction on how many uh, minutes I can upload per month. And so there's some times where I, I use up the, uh, the uh, whatever it is, the amount of uh, minutes I'm allowed to upload. Unless I want to upgrade, of course, which costs a lot of money, so we won't do that. Uh, anyway, so we're in Romans chapter 11. I believe this is our ninth or 10th lesson in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, considering I had, cons- I had actually contemplated doing all three chapters in one week, uh, just to get it over with. Um, this is very interesting. So we're, and since we missed uh, last week, you kind of have to back up and kind of roll into this with uh, a little bit of background. You ultimately have Paul in Romans 9 through 11 trying to answer the question about the Jewish people and their salvation. And... <clears throat> As I have mentioned before, unfortunately, his, he didn't just lay it all out in a, you know, like a a bulleted list. Here are the six things that we all know and here's my definitive definition of each word that I have used so that you have no possibility of misunderstanding what I said. Consequently, we have entire books, we have entire theologies, we have entire um, uh, groups of people who argue vehemently with each other over what Paul meant. Don't expect me to give you the answer. Uh, Instead, we're going to simply explore this together, continuing to go through the question that Paul's trying to answer about the people of Israel. Obviously, as a Jew, Paul is concerned about his people. We have to remember that every city that he visited, he went to the synagogue first and attempted to explain to those in the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah. And in a couple cases, we can go into our history in Acts and find out that after a few weeks of... Running into very stubborn people, he just went across the street to the Gentile house and taught there, and there was receptivity. It wasn't all the time, but it did happen like that. But we come to verse 25, and we have just had him talk about the idea of the olive tree and it being uh, the 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 bad limbs were cut off or. Or, um, or uh, what's my word here clipped and then new branches are being grafted on suggesting that there are those in the Jewish um, community that are not going to believe but that there are those in the Gentile community who will believe and then the hope that there will be those that God has the power to graft them back onto that tree of justification. So we get to verse 25, and I'd like us to read out loud verses 25 to 27 based on your handout. We'll just give us a little start so we can create a The technical word in New Testament scholarship is a pericope, a a paragraph or a thought. So let's read this together. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, the first thing you need to correct on that handout is my typo where I have Isaiah 59, 20, and 21. It's supposed to be on the next line. <clears throat> because that quote actually spills from verse 26 to verse 27 in Romans. So, my mistake, sorry. I you know, hope it doesn't totally confuse you. In- hey, wait, I know that that verse is wrong. You know, I, I knew you knew that, so I had to admit it in front of you. Um, but yeah, it's frustrating when I find out I've done all my handouts, I'm all ready to go, and I'm looking at going. Oh no, I did it again. Anyway, I just like showing my imperfections to the public. But um, start out with that verse 25 lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Hmm. What mystery? What is he talking about? Anybody? What mystery is Paul talking about? Gentiles. The Gentile and Jew question. Yeah. Gentiles in other words, he's just been talking about it for three chapters. And he's saying, I I really don't want you to think you've figured this out. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Oh my goodness. You have probably run into people. And I've read people. Who are so absolutely firm and certain. That these are those who are in heaven. And these are not. As if we know. We have figured it out. Um, Paul is saying, lest you be wise in your own sight. You need to be unaware that there's a mystery here. And mystery almost inevitably within scripture is referring to something that is not a secret, but is something that has only been known to God and is now being revealed. It's not like it's this grand secret to you know, the, keys, the keys to the kingdom. It's more of this mystery. And I like that word in this context. I almost wish he had started chapters, chapter 9 verse 1 with this verse. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Because he's exploring it. He's trying to help us understand. And then he brings in the hardening again, which we saw over in chapter 11, verses verse 5 and in verse 7 of chapter 11. This partial hardening has come upon Israel. Okay. What in the world is a partial hardening? Because before, he just talked about the hardening. Now he's talking about partial hardening. How can you be partially hardened? <coughs> well, go ahead. Please use your use that no, illustration okay. you did no, no, a few no, weeks no, ago. No, oh, that. then I will, but I'll steal it from you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was just going to say a partial hardening that could be three different things, right? So it could be partial in the sense that it's not all of Israel, because mm-hmm. Paul himself is. He's already Israel. said that. Yeah. Uh, it could be partial in the sense that it's partial in time. So maybe this isn't. Mm-hmm. All the time, And that can be partial in the sense that it's not that their hearts are entirely hardened towards God in every way. They're hardened with regard to one specific thing, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. And so the answer is yes, to so, all yeah. three <laughs> possibilities. And you used the illustration when after the class the last time we talked about hardening, because I was using the illustration of clay becoming hardened. And you made a very good point. You said, when you're working with clay, what makes clay soft? Water. And what happens when you withdraw the water? It becomes hard. And it's as if God's water, God's spirit, withdrew, and thus was the hardening. It's not that, you know, he was being mean. It's just he's, the clay basically said, we don't want you. He goes, okay, your choice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing because there are those who would say, well, that isn't how God works. God's always dumping a bucket of water on everybody at all times. Yes, there's, there is that, but there is also a truth of the resistance to God's spirit and to God's attempt This was brought out when Paul was writing about the remnant in earlier in chapter 11. Where Elijah says, well, I'm the only one who believes. And God says, no, I've got 7,000 of you. Um, There is a remnant who does believe me. And there has always been a remnant. But then he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, And you want to go, okay, Paul, please don't use words we don't understand. Please, and he just, in the context of what he's been trying to say, is that the Jews rejected, and the Gentiles come in, they are being received by God, they have received God, and didn't it say earlier in the passage that hopefully this would make the Jews what? Jealous. Jealous. That they would see. Oh wait, that <clears throat> that promise is being fulfilled over here. We should have a. We should have that. That's a good thing. That's again. He's just trying to come at it a different way. What well, we have to be careful of, and I saw this in two different uh, sources. I was looking at. I'm not sure Paul intended to set this up as a sequential order of events. Mm-hmm. That you have. The Jews don't believe, the Gentiles believe, and now the Jews believe. As if it, one has to follow the other. I think it's more of a circle. Because down through the ages, this has been happening over and over and over and over again. So we we tend to try to think in our Western mentality and the way we've been taught is to think things sequentially or chronologically which is why we're studying the Bible chronologically Um, but just trying to put it in a context of time that isn't necessarily the way it is intended but let's look at verse 26 the first line and in this way all Israel will be saved it's like his Conclusion to everything he's written up to this point. So, what does the word all mean? And what does the word Israel mean? Oh, darn. <laughs> because is he talking about the nation Israel? As in modern day Israel. With borders and a government and an army and nuclear weapons. Is that what he's talking about? No, i, just, I just read back to catch up since I missed, but like 9 6 says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Right. So we're talking about maybe those who God has selected beforehand, okay. the Israelites, those who are the part of the, those, time, who have, the flesh. those who have accepted Christ as Messiah. But. It says all Israel. Yeah. <laughs> so, what does the word all mean? Yeah. So, I have said city, is this literal, figurative, or representative? Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking that they talk also about circumcised parts. Yeah. And that would be these those that believe that who have accepted and that is a remnant but that isn't all so here's the problem and you have to we have to watch this in our biblical interpretation when we study scripture be careful in trying to take a word and apply that same word equally at all times In the English language or even in the Hebrew language or the Greek language. For example, we have here, all Israel will be be saved. Well, in Joshua 7.25, it said, all Israel stoned Achan. So does that mean every man, woman, and child showed up and threw a rock? Did Achan stone himself? Hmm? Did Achan stone himself? Yeah, did Achan stone himself? Exactly, he was going... I mean, no. It didn't mean all. It just meant there were a lot of people, and it was a, in that particular case, it was a condemnation of the people, but it wasn't all the people. So we come to this and we say, all Israel will be saved. Well, didn't G- Paul just teach us about a remnant, as you mentioned? But now here's the question: Is it a spiritual Israel or an ethnic Israel? Because there are those who would teach you that this means, that this promise means that Israel as a people, the Jewish people, this is a promise to the people of Israel. Now, I'm not gonna stand up here and say that is not what it means because I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Because didn't we talk about Jesus or God's promises and His covenant to His people? And doesn't God keep His promises? Because if He didn't keep His promises, that means He is going to break His promise to His people, which means God can break His promises. You see the logic? We have to be really careful that we don't misinterpret or misrepresent or extrapolate an entire theological framework based on an interpretation of ethnic versus spiritual because there are those who believe that the church has supplanted Israel in the covenant that the American church has supplanted the covenant that there is a faction that believes that but Let's not go there. In fact, there are those who would, I'm going to say this as a joke, okay. So there's those who say the only Bible you should study is the King James Bible because it was re-inspired in 1611, in English, which is a real bummer for the French, but anyway. (laughs) Sorry, it's an old joke, I've been saying that joke for 25 years. Anyway. If it's only a spiritual Israel, then would that mean that the Gentile part of this equation is only figurative as well? Again, you have to be careful when you start extrapolating and making judgments based on language because it's important. There was one um, commentator, he said, anyone And I had to say, you know, he's making a really good point. Anyone who says that this is a figurative Israel is is completely twisting the words in this text because it means all of Israel. The people of Israel will be saved at the end of time. It's an apocalyptic statement. And in fact, the prophecy in Isaiah that follows this verse is saying that. So you look at that verse. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And this will be my covenant with them. That is a quote from Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. And then in Isaiah 27, it says that Jacob's guilt will be atoned for when I take away their sins. Let's take the prophecies even further. Zechariah 12, 10-12. to It's a longer passage, I'm not going to read it for you, but it basically says, The house of David will mourn their sins when they look upon the one whom they have pierced. And then in Zechariah 13, 1, On that day, a fountain of forgiveness will cleanse the house of David and Jerusalem. That is a prophecy to the people of Israel. It isn't just saying, oh, you know, we'll restore you after your, your exile and everything will be fine and dandy. It is a prophecy for the future. So here's another way to think about it. And again, you're gonna come away going, did, te- did Steve even teach anything in this passage? I'm not sure. No, we're exploring it together. All right? How about this idea? The survival of the Jewish people is inexplicable. I mean, think about it. What are we, 5,000 years now? And this people group? I wrote down here, So where are the Girgashites? (laughs) How about the Hittites? In fact, there was a long period of time where people said that the Bible was not true because it talked about Hittites and there was no record of them anywhere. No archeological data, no other literature, nothing. Until they uncovered an entire library of Hittite literature in the Middle East. And they went, oh, wait, the Bible was right. Huh. gone it, there went that criticism. But they had been wiped off the face of the earth. Well, what about the Philistines? No, they aren't the Chicago Bears. But where, I mean, where are the Philistines? No, Philistines. How about the Edomites? about the Canaanites? One writer put it this way, the preservation of the Jews is really one of the most signal and illustrious acts of divine providence. And what but a supernatural power could have preserved them in such a manner as none none other nation on earth has been preserved. Nor is the providence of God less remarkable in the destruction of their enemies than in their preservation. We see that the great empires which in their turn subdued and oppressed the people of God have all come into ruin, all of them. And if such had been the fatal end of the enemies and the oppressors of the Jews, let it serve as a warning to those who at any time or upon any occasion are for raising a clamor and a persecution against them. This guy wrote this in 1780. (laughs) And you kind of look at it and go, oh, wow, that's kind of amazing. Winston Churchill put it this way. Some people like the Jews. Some don't. But no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are beyond any question the most, most formidable and most remarkable race that has appeared in the world. They're God's chosen people. Let's not ignore that. You might want to say, yeah, but it's not fair. I mean, you know, we're, 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 we're the chosen ones now. How about we were always already chosen by God. God sent his son to save everyone. His people rejected him. But he had always provided a remnant, he always provided salvation. He always made that option there. Always. And that option was also available to Gentiles, and there are signs of Gentile peoples who had a faith, and they were even given names. What were they what were they called? A Gentile who was a believer? What were they called them? I don't remember. Anyway, sorry. It's not in my notes. I was doing that off the top of my head, which I should never do. So, will all Jews be saved at the second coming? Hmm. Well, who are we to know? Seriously. But the scripture is clear that some are going to reject Jesus, and those will not be elect. They will not be taken to heaven. It's very clear in Scripture. How about this one? Is modern Israel as a nation to be saved? If as a nation they were to turn to Jesus and they in the, what do they call it? The Knesset? Is that their parliament? Knesset. 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 If they had a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and that all must agree. Would then Israel be saved? Exactly. And you'd brought it up with the circumcision of the heart, the change of the heart. Look, Christianity was the religion of countries in Europe. We have, you know, we have the receipts. Did it do anything? No. And there are those who say, but Christian, America is a Christian nation. Ha, 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 ha. No, we're not. We may have had the principles of Christian and biblical foundations that were interwoven into the governmental documents. But if you were to say, and look at America right now, no, I'm sorry. So that argument, you know, of a national conversion, to me, I'm sorry, it just kind of doesn't hold water. All right, let's read verses 28 and 29 together. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Huh. So they're enemies and they're beloved. They're beloved enemies. Well, that's a contradiction of terms. But he's saying, the people of Israel are enemies, but they're also beloved. You know, again, I wish Paul had had a thesaurus or a, an index or a, you know, uh, some sort of Dictionary in the back of his letter, so we could understand what he's trying to say. I think he's trying to basically say, Is the Jewish people, the Jewish people, those who do not believe are then enmity. Isn't that in another passage somewhere, somewhere where those who do not believe are enmity with God? They are enemies of God. At the same time, they are beloved. He wants them to be saved. And then he brings in this lovely verse. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Okay. <clears throat> the irrevocable word. is such a wonderful word. Oh my goodness. It's basically no take backs. No mulligans. No do-overs. God said it. He made a promise, he made a calling, he gave gifts, and he isn't taking them back. This falls under the doctrine of the immutability of God, the unchangeable nature of God. God is the same, as it says in Hebrews, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I wrote here, The immutability of God is one of the attributes of God for which we take, I'm sorry, my grammar's all off today. It's one of the attributes of God which we take for granted. We don't ever talk about it. We talk about the other cool ones, other cool attributes. But then think about that for a second. It's hard to imagine that the God who spoke to Moses is the one to whom we just prayed. It's the same. Hasn't changed. He hasn't gotten smarter. He hasn't finally figured out DNA. (laughs) He's the one that created it in the first place. As one guy put it, it's kinda, you should use the word always to express this truth. God is always wise, always sovereign, always just, always good, always holy, always merciful, always gracious. You can't get around it. God's promises don't change. They are irrevocable. The gifts and the callings of God have not changed. Yet we doubt that. God promises that He is for us. Who shall be against us? And we doubt it. His purposes do not change. So why do we make our plans? I mean, I can really get into planning, and I, you know, I will plan multiple variations on what may happen if this happens. So you end up with 17 plans, and then as the event gets closer, it's fewer and fewer plans because you have planned for the possible variation. That's almost foolish. Yeah, some people call it good management. Uh, I would call it obsessive compulsive. Um, <laughs> I know that's the worst part. It usually comes the very moment. Oh darn! I never took that into account. Shoot. Uh, well, yeah. Yet we make our plans. His love does not change. So isn't it interesting? Even in today's sermon, Pastor Jim is saying except you don't know me God if you knew me you would know that I'm not worthy God starts to chuckle and go dude (laughs) it's why I know you that I brought my son for you we just don't believe that God cannot change we just we can't comprehend it and so this idea for Paul to be talking about the Jew and the Gentile question and the saving of the people of the Jews and the covenants and all of this, and then he ends it with, well, i ends it. He's awful close to the end. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Whoa. Thus, you have to step back and look at our questions about, is it figurative? Is it literal? Is it representative? And kind of say... This is beyond my pay grade. This is something that we can praise God for his immutability, his unchangeable nature. He has given a promise, and you know what? It's his job to sort it all out. We can't be standing at the gate going, Oh, Carl, (laughs) sorry, you're out. Well, why? What did I do? Well, that's the problem. You know, it, it's not how it works. We don't have that ability. We don't have that power. And yet we try to figure it out for some intellectual comfort, I guess. And it's, it's, I'm not saying it's not important to study theology and to try to wrestle with these questions. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying sometimes we get really wrapped up and make that the point. And I'm speaking as someone who loves to read about theology and study this. Let's read verses 30 to 32 together. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also now may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Hmm. Okay, which word is repeated four times? Disobedience, yes. And mercy. There's two quartets. Two times, two words. Two words presented here. It's almost that poetic literary device that Paul is so good at doing where he's making this contrast, but he's focusing on disobedience against mercy. You can't miss it. Notice that he did not write, you were disobedient, but now you are obedient. He wrote, you were disobedient, and now you have received mercy. So who is the one who is presenting and giving salvation and the gift? It's not us. It's not that, oh, I'm a good boy now. Now I get to go to heaven. It's a, I'm a bad boy. I don't deserve heaven. And God shows mercy. Isn't that interesting? Because it would have been very interesting, very easy to write it as, you once were disobedient, and now you are obedient. He does not say that. One guy wrote, called this passage, Sinners in the Hands of a Merciful God, (laughs) instead of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, And that's exactly what it is. Disobedient to God, now you have mercy. Because of their disobedience. Now they've been disobedient, nor that the mercy shown you, they might receive mercy. God has consigned, or put in prison, all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now, before anyone misunderstands that last phrase, this is not universalism, that all will be saved. And it's not what he's saying, although this verse has been twisted into that. You just say that God has mercy on all, period. And there's no question about that. You can't say that. It doesn't say and all will be saved in this context. So make sure we see the difference. So I have a question. And I know it might be this is just kind of blinding flash of the obvious. But I think it's always good to periodically define words. Let's take the word mercy. What is it? I mean, it's repeated forth. We know what disobedience is. You know, Here's the rules. You didn't follow them, you disobeyed. But what is mercy? Have you ever thought about a definition of mercy? If you're talking to someone on the street and you say, you know, God is a merciful God. I'm like, okay. What does that mean? He's not condemning you for what What you've done. He's not condemning you. No condemnation. Okay. That's one idea. Uh, Typically we tell kids in Sunday school, mercy means to receive something you don't deserve. Okay. To receive something... Maybe it's Good. not to get what you don't to get what you do deserve. grace. <laughs> grace, that's right. I've got grace and mercy mixed up, yeah. right. Not to receive something. You, you do deserve. You deserve. Yeah, yeah. You you not to receive something you do deserve. No, no, it's not. you right, but then not happen. Yeah, not to receive <laughs> something you do deserve. <laughs> <laughs> not to receive something you do deserve. Grace is the other one. Oh, I'm not even spelling any words right now. <laughs> uh, of punishment. So withholding punishment. <laughs> Anybody else? I mean, we think about this. You know, you hear grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. I've never heard one for mercy. in so many different ways, in so many different places. It's a secular idea, too. Not just biblical, but that that came out wrong. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you can have, mercy well, let's talk about our persecuted brethren. So you get someone who is under a literal gun, and the guy does not pull the trigger. He is showing mercy. <laughs> he has the power to punish but withholds it. That's a possible one-off way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just, it just struck me. I, I, I'm sitting here going, it's an attribute of the character of God. 1 Chronicles 21.13. His mercy is very great. Nehemiah 9.31 talks about your great mercy. Luke one seventy-eight says, Christ came because of the tender mercies of God. Romans 9.16, just two chapters earlier, God's election springs from God's mercy. Ephesians 2.4, God is rich in mercy. In fact, Pastor Jim quoted from that passage this morning. Titus 3.5, God saved us because of His mercy. James 5.11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And yet, we don't try to define it. I don't know, maybe we don't need to. Maybe it's just something you should meditate on and think about. The mercy of God. God has that right, if we believe in the God of judgment, to punish for sins. The, to you know, basically repeat the great flood and wipe everybody out. That's right. Part of the Old Testament and the, the symbol of Christ and and, and and the Holy, you know, it's it's that's what God presents as foremost. Mm-hmm. I'm not juxtaposing them against each other, but it's not called the grace seat. Exactly. <laughs> it's The mercy seat. Yeah, it's the mercy seat, exactly. How does this? How does it? What about mercy killing? That's that's a different concept, mm-hmm. right? It's not withholding punishment, it's using but it's words, showing it's compassion. Uh, uh, no, yes? you're using no? semantics to define something instead of actual literal words. It what the person receiving oh. that word that phrase means. <laughs> it's like, yeah. He's got a definition. Yeah, this I uh, looked up in Wikipedia. There's oh, oh right. but Wikipedia, <laughs> we can <laughs> trust Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's just as good <laughs> as the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> One says, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to (coughs) punish or harm, an event to be grateful for, especially because its occurrence prevents something unpleasant or provides relief from suffering. His death was, in a way, a mercy. Or, especially of a journey or a mission, performed out of a desire to relieve suffering motivated by compassion. As in mercy killing. Well, no, wait. I, I have to stop here because we're talking about euthanasia mostly. I mean, when you yes. say mercy killing, that's the vernacular for... It be, has let's, become let's, that, yeah. Well, let's right. not. There's no such thing as. There okay. Isn't anything such thing we'll, as mercy we'll, we'll table that for now. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe with someday I'll bring back my can of worms and uh, <laughs> we, can, uh, we can talk about that. Here's a thought that one pastor came up with. He says, I take great encouragement from something Ron Dunn wrote about when he learned at the end of a very bad day. When he got up, he didn't spend any time praying. As the day wore on, he was churlish in the way he treated people. When the day finally ended, he knelt to pray and began saying, Lord, I made a mess in my life today and I confess I am not worthy to come into your presence. At that point, he felt the Lord interrupt his prayer. Ron, You think having a quiet time this morning would have made you worthy to talk to me? Do you think doing good and treating people right would have somehow made you qualified to come into my presence? If that's what you think, you don't know yourself. You don't know me, and you don't understand my mercy. And then the pastor says, I can relate to that story because... Most of the time that's exactly how I think. It's so easy for all of us to believe that our good works somehow commend us to, the, us to God. And if we'll just be good, God is more likely to hear our prayers. But to think like that is to deny the gospel itself. We are accepted by God only on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. How dare we wave the tattered rags of a quiet time and think that somehow that makes a difference in heaven. I'm all for having a quiet time and for treating people right and totally on the side of living for the Lord, but all of that cannot even add a sliver to our acceptance before God. We are totally dependent on His mercy for everything we have ever received from God. You know, as you talk about mercy, it seems like to me you can't understand the word without also thinking about the fear of the Lord. And we can't understand mercy without understanding disobedience. Yeah. They and I think that's why Paul has both in the verse. He's contrasting sin with forgiveness. Without saying either one, which is brilliant. But isn't that how he's he kind of saying, Look, I can't understand mercy if I don't understand what's I need to be what's that mercy has been shown to me for something. What did I do? What did I get? No, it all came for nothing that we've done, anyway. And that disobedience is it seems to be what actually qualifies you for mercy, yeah, because without sin, you would not need mercy, yeah. So it was the mercy of God to make you disobedient. <laughs> <laughs> to give us the capacity of disobedience. Well, that's what it seems to do because it says right here that he kind of, you what, imprisoned them? He said that term Yeah. Or disobedience. He imprisoned yep. disobedience so that he could show them mercy. It's also in the context of the Jewish people. This is, we have to remember, we can extrapolate the personal context. In this context he's trying to talk about a wider salvation of a people. That they were, their disobedience was so that mercy can be shown and that then that mercy is available to all. Good stuff.
1: Oh, you have another thought?
0: No, well, I just wanted to say that, you know, I can sense the flavor here of Paul seeing a little bit of potential haughtiness for those who are not Jews. Yes. Wow. He even we said figured, that earlier. He, yeah, he said, don't get all haughty. Don't get all uppity about this. You know, that's dangerous for you to start thinking that you're superior to someone else because of God's mercy has been shown to you. We had to be really careful about that. Well, I guess that's why i say saying the fear of the Lord seems to be so That's a good point. Is yeah. that... Um, the understanding that there is this wrath that we actually deserve, it's just sitting right here. Yeah. And and you have an all-powerful God, you know, holding it off. Yeah. You, on Jesus' back. Yeah. You know? Exactly. <clears throat> so let's look at verses 33 to 36. Let's read it together. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul breaks into a doxology in the middle of his lecture. This is, this, is, this is just amazing if you think about it. He doesn't have to write this. He could have ended. He could have easily ended at verse 32. God is consigned to all, to disobedience, that he may have mercy in his all. Full stop. But he keeps going. And it's like this wave of praise of the Almighty comes washing over him and he has no choice but to express it. Now it's also one of the reasons why some people think that 9 to 11 is stuck into the middle of the book. Because this sounds like the end of something. I don't think it's the end. I think it's a almost a, a human expression that just flows out of who Paul is as he's contemplating the grand mysteries of God, salvation, and his mercy. All of that, age just breaks into song, almost. I mean, think of this. We've talked about immutability. Well, there's a few other attributes. God is sovereign, almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. All the omnis, whatever omni you want to come up with infinite, eternal, immortal. When we start contemplating the beauty, the greatness, I, I, I like, I'm literally have no words here. I'm just amazed that Paul had them. But when you start thinking about how big God is, and so, if you're in first service, Pastor Jim began stealing from my class. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I'm stealing from my class. <laughs> but I even told him afterwards. I said, it's like we're in cahoots. Because he went on, because the psalm was so strong about the idea of God is above the heavens. He created the stinking heavens. And He's bigger than that. It says, how unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. We cannot fathom them. We try. Oh my goodness, do we try. Just this past week, I was listening to a apologist discussing a major um, TV pastor who came out basically saying that the Bible is inadequate. Oh. Yeah. He calls himself yeah. Basically saying the Bible just isn't a good starting point when you're talking to, to the secular people of today. They just don't get it. And of course, this apologist is saying, well, if you can't use the Bible, where do you start? <laughs> Oh, you start with humanity. What a great place. Because it's so consistent. No, you can't do that. One phrase that was stated was, the Bible is sacred, but it's not scientific. And you want to go, okay, I know what you're trying to say here, but you're saying that science, human understanding of science, is greater than the scripture. So I came across this quote which is absolutely genius. A well-known astronomer for NASA's Goddard Institute wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And he came, his name is Robert Jastrow, came to this conclusion. This is an exceedingly strange development. Unexpected by all but the theologians. (laughs) They've always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. But for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. The scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, He's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) Every time we try to tear apart the scriptures, there is a hall of thinkers behind us and are kind of going, seriously? We talk about the Jews surviving. How about the scriptures surviving? every attempt to undermine it, tear it apart make it irrelevant and boy is that more powerful than it is today but when you start thinking about God himself, who is this God, how big is he verse 33 talks about the depths, well I go over to Isaiah 55:9, and it says the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts And I came across this to put the heavens in perspective. These are always kind of fun. So imagine you have a flat piece of glass that goes in every direction to infinity. You can't see the end of the glass, so it's just a big, massive piece of glass. And you take the sun, which is eight hundred and sixty five thousand miles wide that's kinda big by the way and you shrink it into the size of a weather balloon okay so it's pretty large and you put it on the glass then you step off eighty three paces two feet for each step so eighty three times and you place a, uh, where is it, a mustard seed, and that's mercury, scale, big balloon, little mustard seed. Then 60 more steps, and you place a BB, and that's Venus. 78 more steps, and you put down a green pea, and that's Earth. So, that what is that? 83 plus 60 plus 78. We're that many steps away from the Sun. 108 more paces and you put down an eraser head, like when you find inside a mechanical pencil, a little tiny thing, that's Mars. Because Mars is half the size of the Earth. Then after Mars, you sprinkle a bunch of dirt, that's for the asteroids, 788 more spaces, you place down an orange for Jupiter. 934 steps, you put a golf ball for Saturn. 2086 more steps and you put a marble down for Uranus. Then 2322 steps and you put a cherry and that's Neptune. We haven't, we are now two and a half miles away from the sun. That's the distance from here to Tatum and Lincoln, approximately. We haven't gotten to Pluto yet. Oh, by the way, that's, that's not a planet. You so <laughs> can't do that one. They're changing their mind. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, two and a half miles, one direction, in a diameter of five miles. And in that five miles, on that piece of glass, all we have is a weather balloon. A mustard seed, a BB, a pea, a racer head, some dirt, an orange golf ball marble, and a chair. That's it. So how many steps to the nearest star? Any idea? Just a million? Okay. Not even
1: close.
0: (laughs) You're out in the middle of nowhere right now, wondering where your next food's coming from. (laughs) 17,740,000 steps will take you 6,720 miles in this picture, to the nearest star. That means you would walk from here to Beijing. So go from Lincoln and Tatum to Beijing to find the next star. Oh my goodness sake! And that's just our solar system. And as they say, there are solar systems and Milky Ways and other constellations it's infinite seemingly this God is the God who cares for you right now in this room at this moment and in your past he provided for your salvation even though you didn't deserve it That same God, the God who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, is the same God that we prayed to an hour ago. (laughs) We get so full of ourselves. It's almost laughable when you try to contemplate how big God is. Matthew ten thirty says as he's numbered the hairs on the heads of seven billion people, he's just grateful I have less to count. <laughs> I mean, just hard to contemplate. The human body contains between fifty and seventy-five trillion cells, and each cell is a library of DNA, making you unique. No two people are alike. Even identical twins are not exactly alike. If you were to clone me, yay, that would be fun. We could have another class. Well, guess what? As soon as you put my clone in another room, I'm a different person. Different experiences, different things happen, different physical changes, different, everything changes in that moment. And when you like to look at how big things are, they just discovered that Jupiter has 12 more moons the other week. I mean, seriously, you, you, you missed them the first time? Oh my goodness, yeah, some are only a mile in diameter. That's not, well, wait a minute, that's pretty big. If one of those fell on my house, I'd feel it. And we're just discovering that now? A.W. Tozer put it this way. To say that God is infinite is to say that He is measureless. Measurement is the way created things have of accounting for themselves. It describes limitations, imperfections, and cannot apply to God. Weight describes the gravitational pull of the earth upon material bodies. Distance describes intervals between bodies in space, which I just did length means extension in space and there are other familiar measurements such as those for liquid and energy and sound and light and the number for pluralities we also try to measure abstract uh, qualities and speak of great or little faith high or low intelligence large or meager talents is it not plain that all this does not and cannot apply to God. It is the way we see the works of His hands, but not the way we see Him. He's above all this, outside of it, beyond it. Our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity, energy, numbers, speed, but never God. Nothing in God is less or more. Nothing is God Nothing is large or small for God. He is what He is in Himself. Without qualifying thought or word, He is simply God. That is the God of the universe that Paul is praising here and saying, look at His mighty works. Look at the fact that He has given you salvation, Jew. Look at the fact that He's given you salvation, Gentile. And He's all done it on His own sacrifice and His mercy. Not because He had to, but because He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this. inspiring Paul's words here we are 2,000 years later contemplating those words and just being blown away by them to even think about God and think about you to think about Jesus in this manner in this way it's hard to comprehend and for that we are grateful we are grateful we cannot comprehend, for it makes us understand your rich mercy for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And by the way, Wednesday starts the season of Lent, if you are one who likes to do a 40-day reading. You happen to have a book that was set up in 40 days. that you could use in case you want to use it for that.